and they maybe go to Bible study and they may have discipleship groups or various age group ministries, but what draws the family together is worship. Today in America, 75 million people will gather in a public place of worship to worship God. That's three times more than will watch all the sporting events today or attend sporting events today. And yet in a survey by George Barna, he says in his survey that one-third of church-going Americans, adults, say they have never experienced the presence of God. That one-third of 75 million people who will gather in the name of a holy God today have never experienced a sense of the presence of God. And that half of those who gather will say they've experienced God, but it's only been once or twice in the last year that they've done so. People coming together, singing songs, gathering in the name of a God that we worship, or we say we worship, and yet most saying in some way or another, when I come to God's house, I do not experience a sense of His presence. And so what I want to do today is more teaching than preaching and more informational to try to help you to understand why we're having a problem with worship in America today. I addressed this a few years ago, but I believe that worship is supposed to be life-changing. I believe that when I gather in God's name, whether it is privately or corporately, God wants to do something in my life that changes me in some area of my life, that I am not to come and go and be the same, that God wants to speak to me, that His Spirit wants to move in me in ways to help me to understand His awesomeness, that I do not have to wait until I get to where they are in Revelation 4 and 5 to say hallelujah, praise the Lamb, and mean it from my heart that I can express it now and I can sense the presence of the Lamb of God, even today, if I want to. And so I want to talk about what's wrong with worship in America, first of all. Number one, the majority of Americans don't have any clue what the Bible calls worship. In this survey that George Barnard uh, did, in this survey he discovered that when asking people about worship, these were their answers. Define worship for me. Uh, worship is knowing that God exists. Now, these are Christians that he surveyed. Worship is going to church. But the overwhelming majority of those surveyed, this was their answer, I don't know. Those redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, the majority of them, when asked, define what worship is, said, I don't know how sad it is that we gather in the name of our God and we don't know what we're gathering to do, that we've not figured it out yet. The second thing is, although 75 million people attend worship today, will attend today, most of them have not made worship a priority in their lives, privately or corporately. It's not the thing that they're focused on. It's just one piece of the pie. It's just one segment of their life. It's an isolated event on their calendar and in their day timer. 
It's not something that they focus on. Thirdly, they have the wrong idea of what constitutes a worship experience. They have the wrong idea of what constitutes a worship experience. If you ask some people what worship is, well, worship is when God just makes me feel good. Now, worship is about pleasing God. It's not about pleasing me. There have been times when my feelings have not changed but I do know I have worshipped God because I've done what he's called me to do, what he's told me to do. I've given him the honor that is due his, his name. Number four, activity and attendance is no substitute for spirituality. You can be as busy as a one-armed paper hanger in a windstorm, but it doesn't mean that you are spiritual. And a lot of people are busy in the church, active and busy and serving and doing but not worshiping. Another reason is, is our, we have an unwillingness to deal with sin. You see, when I worship God, then I have to come before God in His holiness, and I have to do something about my sinfulness. God has to speak to me about an area of my life that is not in tune with His Word or His will, and I have to address that issue, and I have to do something about it. And the reason that many people don't worship it's because they try to add worship on top of sin, and you can't do that. Number six, Scripture contains no prescribed style of worship. Now, there's some people that think you can't worship unless you sing the doxology every week. Some think you can't worship unless you take the Lord's Supper every week. Some think you can't worship unless you uh, do a certain style of music every week. Some think you can't worship unless you stand for the Scripture reading. Some think you can't worship unless you have an invitation. Some think you can't worship unless a preacher stands at the back door so you can say, good sermon, good sermon, good sermon. But the Bible doesn't have any prescribed style. And it is arrogant for us to view anybody else's worship experience and say, that's not worship. And I've done that. I've looked at what somebody else was doing, and it may be a little more expressive than I would be or a little too reserved for me. And I go, ah, that's not worship. And it is arrogant for me to impose on somebody my style or my preference and say, only if you do it my way is it worship. Because God obviously has a variety of tastes and flavors in his kingdom. And not everybody's alike, and I'm glad, because we didn't come out of a cookie cutter. God formed us, he knew us, but he didn't make us all alike. And so we have different styles and different preferences. And the success or failure of a worship service is not dependent on how many came, it's not dependent on the size of the offering, it's not dependent on who took notes and who didn't, it's not dependent on if everything went off without a hitch. The success of a worship service is dependent on was God there? And did we meet him? Now, what's the intent of worship? Number one, the worshiper should respond to God with his whole heart. I'm to respond to God. If, if I'm to have an intent in my heart to worship God, I'm to respond to him with my whole heart. The old English word was worship. To give God his worth. To give God what he is due to give God his merit, to give God his, his blessing, and everything that is owed to God, 
I'm to give it to him. Worship results in a transformed life. When I give God a response in my heart, there's some things that happen. You remember where Paul talked about faith, hope, and love? And in several of his letters, he talks about faith, hope, and love. When I'm worshiping God, my faith is growing. I'm starting to believe God for things that I didn't believe him for before. When my faith is growing, then I will also have a greater hope. I will believe that there is a hope ahead of me, regardless of what circumstances and trials I might be going through, because I've been at the throne and I've talked to God and God has told me that my hope is not in this life and I will have a deeper love. I will love him and I will love others with a greater capacity because at the throne of God, I have learned that he transforms the way I think. Secondly, second intent of worship is is that worship should raise the bar. By that I mean it should call us to greater sacrifice and a deeper experience. If I'm growing in my worship, then what will happen is day by day, week by week, year by year, God is continually raising the bar in my life to say to me, don't settle for this, keep going. Don't settle for this level. Don't take status quo. Keep moving, keep growing, keep stretching, keep learning, keep striving, keep longing, have a hunger in your heart. Let God raise the bar every day of your life so that you're never satisfied with where you are. Thirdly, worship is not an event. It's a state of mind, heart, and attitude. Worship is not just what we do from 11 to 12 or 9.30 to 10.30 or, or 6 o'clock at night. That's, that's not what worship... Worship is not an event. It's an attitude that has an action attached to it. It's a state of my mind and my heart and my will toward God. Number four, worship is learning to be intimate with God. You see, sometimes when we talk about worship, we just limit it to corporate worship. But I am personally responsible for the extent of my worship. Not the preacher, not the singer, not the choir, not the conditions. I'm responsible. And I stand before God responsible for if I have chosen to worship Him. I'm personally responsible. I have to learn to be intimate with God, and you don't learn intimacy in a crowd. You learn intimacy alone. And the reason I know that worship is about being intimate with the Father is that Jesus went to a synagogue where none of the priests and none of the people who offered the sacrifices believed in his Father. Not one of them. The common people received him, but the Pharisees rejected him. And Jesus went to church all his growing up. He would go and listen to somebody read from the Torah or read the Psalms, and he would hear them sing the Psalms, and he would look within his heart and go, God, they're singing about you, but they don't know you. And not only that, but he knew that they were rejecting him as God's son, the promised Messiah, that they would not accept him as the one sent by God. And so Jesus did not go to church dependent on the priest and the Levites and the choir and the singers and the, all the things that were going on to meet with God. He met with God in a dead church. We think we need all the add-ons so we can meet with God. 
but I am personally responsible for the level of my intimacy with my Heavenly Father. Number, uh, what are we on? Five. Corporate worship is the overflow of private worship. Now, I've already talked about that, but let me give you a statistic here. In that same survey, one out of every three adults said they make no preparation at all and don't think it's important to prepare their hearts to come to corporate worship, which is why we never experience the presence of God, which is why we don't sense the movement of God, because we have not prepared our hearts in advance to come to church. You know how it was this morning, or it was last Sunday. Get up, get up, let's go, get up, get up. How many times have I got to come in here and tell you to get up? Get up, let's go, let's go. Get in the shower, get in the shower, get your clothes out. Let's go. What do you mean you didn't get your clothes out? I told you to get your clothes out last night. Get up, get up, breakfast is on the table. We got to eat, we got to go. Let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go. Come on, come on, come on, come on. How long does it take you to put on your makeup? You know what time it is? We're going to be late. I'm telling you, we're going to be late. It's like this every time, every week. We cannot get out of this house on time. I do not know what's wrong with this family. I do not know why we can't get up. Get up, let's go. Come on, come on. Why are you so lazy? Don't give me that excuse. I don't want to hear that. Don't tell me you're feeling bad. You told me that last week. Get up, let's go. Get in the car. Get in the car. We got to get in the car. Get this up. Move your car so I can get my car out. Let's go, let's go. Dad, gum it. Somebody got my parking space. If you hadn't been late, we would have parked in my parking space. Now we're going to be late. I'll bet somebody's sitting in my seat. We're going to have to sit somewhere else. I don't like it. I don't like it at all. Now, Lord, speak to me today. And help my children to know that we are to love God. Amen. Ever have one of those mornings? Have one today? You see, we don't prepare our hearts for worship. We don't make it a priority. We, we think Sunday is a day we can sleep later instead of a day we can get up like normal and get prepared to come meet God. And the intent of worship is that we come prepared, not that we get prepared after we get here. Or that something happens during the sermon that gets us ready to meet God. Now, why is there a controversy over worship? First of all, true worship is controversial. <clears throat> you know, the first murder was over worship. The argument between Cain and Abel was what was acceptable worship. Why do you think worship is controversial? I'll tell you why. Because Satan hates praise. He hates for God's people to praise God. He hates for God's people to worship. He hates for the honor and glory to be given to God. He wants to sit on that throne. He wants to get that honor. And so he hates worship. If he hates anything, he hates worship. And that first murder, right off the bat in Genesis, was about worship. Secondly, this debate is nothing new. It's been going on a long time. You study church history, you'll find out that uh, every new thing that has been started has been controversial. Now, I want to read you a quote by a prominent pastor. I was shocked when I read this, but this is a quote by a prominent pastor about what's happening or what happens in music. There are several reasons for opposing newer music. One, it's too new. Two, it's often worldly and even blasphemous. The new Christian music is not as pleasant as the more established style because, I love this one, because there are so many new songs 
You can't learn them all. Heard that one? It also puts too much emphasis on instrumental music rather than on godly lyrics. This new music creates disturbances, making people act indecently and disorderly. The preceding generation got along fine without it. Those words were spoken in 1723 by a critic of Isaac Watts because he disapproved of two of Isaac Watts' hymns, O God, Our Help in Ages Past, based on Psalm 90, and When I Surveyed the Wondrous Cross. You see, the songs that we revere, when they came out, were considered blasphemous by some. We'll talk about that a little later. But I want to take you through church history, give you a little quick walkthrough, and uh, you've got some fill-in-the-blank there. In the hundreds, uh, we're going through the ADs, and the, and uh, in the hundreds, they had daily worship. Christians would rise and pray at dawn, and they would get up and pray at midnight. When they changed from daily worship, people said the church has compromised. We can't get half of our people to come back on Sunday night, much less get them to come every day. You know, they said the church is compromised. We're not meeting for morning and evening prayers. We're not meeting daily. In the 200s, instrumental music was thought to be associated with immorality. In fact, the flute was considered an immoral instrument because it was used by temple prostitutes. And so to bring the flute into the church was an act of immorality. It was to bring shame to worship and to music by bringing instrumental music into the church in the 200s. In the 300s, community and congregational hymn singing was introduced. Sometimes they sung these songs in the 300s by getting up and marching around the building as they sung. <laughs> now, here's, the, here's where things really started going south. They would take the songs written by pagan heretics using the same meter but would rewrite the words. The criticism in the 300s was hymns with rhythm are worldly. That knock out about half our hymn book. In the 600s, the monasteries had a seven-time daily order of prayer. The soloist was introduced with the congregation repeating the refrain at intervals. By the way, that's what Gary asked you to do on the first song, was to sing after him. Hallelujah. The rocks cry out. He's just asking you to sing along. Soloist was introduced. Here was the problem. The problem with the church at that time was People said, if we listen to a soloist, we'll be honoring man instead of God. And so we shouldn't have soloists because that focuses attention on a person instead of on God. Man, that's silly. But that was a battle that churches fought in the 600s. In the 800s, almost all singing was done in chant based on scales using only what we would call in today's, only the white keys on the piano. Chants using scales only with the white keys on the piano. And anything else, you don't do that. In the 900s, choirs began to be used extensively. Now the controversy around the choirs being used, and the reason choirs were used is because music began to be notated. 
And rather than learning a song by ear, you started learning a song by reading it off of a piece of paper. Somebody would handwrite these notes on pieces of paper and the choir would sing from that. And this new method of writing down music was considered a threat to our tradition. In the 1200s, four-part music, started by the Oak Ridge Quartet, I had to throw that in. Four-part music started in France, and it was called by many lewd music. Now, here was the major criticism of four-part music. It was too complicated to please God. I've heard some four-part music that I thought that was right about. There were four parts, but they weren't in tune or in harmony. Uh, in 1300s, choirs in the Gothic-era cathedrals were paid professionals. Here is the idea. Don't try this at home. Leave it to a professional. You shouldn't sing on your own. You shouldn't come to church and sing. You should let paid professionals do all your singing for you. In the 1400s, only choirs were allowed to sing, and they were considered too loud. In those big stone Gothic cathedrals, that sound would reverberate off those hard surfaces. And the common criticism of music in the 1400s was, I can't hear the words. John Wycliffe said, No one can hear the words, and all the rest of us watch them like fools. I don't know if this is funny to y'all, but it is pretty funny to me. In the 1500s, King Henry VIII, who was a pagan, decreed that worship services could be done in English only and only one syllable to each note. Now, for those of you that are musicians, you can appreciate the problem with all that. Martin Luther introduced congregational worship. Of course, we're all familiar that Martin Luther took the number one bar tune of his time and turned it into a hymn. He changed the words, kept the same tune, and wrote a mighty fortress as our God. But it was considered worldly, to put spiritual words to secular tunes. By the way, that same criticism came up in the late 60s and early 70s during the Jesus movement when people would take the words of secular songs and try to put Christian words to them. That same criticism was around 400 years later. In the 1600s, the organ became a central instrument to the Lutheran, Anglican, and Catholic worship. Yet Reformed churches were opposed to it. But here's the, the interesting thing about the introduction of the organ to worship in the 1600s. The people were told at certain points in the service, you don't sing, the organist will perform for you. And you do not sing along with the organist. In the 1700s, Isaac Watts' hymns were called man-made because he freely paraphrased Scripture. Charles Wesley did the same thing. John Wesley and the songs he wrote did the same thing. They freely paraphrased Scripture. The criticism was, if we allow songs that freely paraphrase Scripture, we will lose our respect for the Word of God. In the 1800s, William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, used rousing melodies to, to set the tone for his army. Now, I, in doing my, my study, I, I discovered something. William Booth was the first person that anybody can find that said, why should the devil have all the best music? William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, who had that bombastic band 
that walked around and changed the country because they weren't ashamed of the gospel. In the 1900s, with the infancy of radio, Christian pioneers like H.A. Ironside and Donald Gray Barnhouse began to feature gospel music quartets. Many thought that radio was an instrument of the devil because, after all, Satan is the prince of the power of the air. Never underestimate the stupidity of some of God's people. And now we have, with contemporary Christian music, hip-hop, pop, classical, R&B, I mean, you name it, rap, we've got it all. And I have to be honest, I listen to some of it and I wonder how in the world can that communicate? But then I have to remind myself that somebody said quartets couldn't communicate, soloists couldn't communicate, choirs couldn't communicate. There's always been somebody who's looked at a method and said, that's wrong. And God said, I overrule you. I'll use it for my glory. I didn't call you to set the tone. I called you to sing along. I'll use it for my glory. And I want to tell you, God uses some things that I would never use. That's why he's still on the throne and I'm not. Because he uses things and he uses people and he uses styles that I don't see how he can use it. But that's why he's bigger than me. And that's why worship is to give him honor and praise that God can take any form, any style, anywhere, and he can use it for his glory. One of the mistakes our missionaries have made through the years is trying to Americanize people before they get them saved. And there's a distinct culture in every part of the world, and they worship differently. And we should never try to impose Bible Belt versions of Christianity on people in third world countries because it won't work. And I think we've hindered the gospel by trying to confine it to worship looks like this. And the best thing we could do is to save some people and then get out of there so that they could do worship the way God made them to do worship. So, what does it mean to worship? We're going to wrap this up with Psalm 29. Psalm 29. David was out tending sheep one day, and he saw an approaching storm, and in that storm he sensed something about God. Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in holy array. The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The glory of God thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord hews out flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer to calve and strips the forest bare. And in his temple, everything says glory. The Lord sat at king as king at the flood. Yes, the Lord sits as king forever. The Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. Now before we look at this text just briefly, I want to ask you some tough questions and ask you to be very honest. Number one, I wonder what God thinks when we give him our divided loyalties and leftovers. 
We don't like to eat leftovers after about the second day after Thanksgiving, but I wonder why we like to give God leftovers. Just whatever we got left, we kind of give to Him. Second question, I wonder what God thinks when we walk in consumed with what we will get today instead of what we will offer Him. I wonder what God thinks when we are always silent and never rejoicing over the reading of the Scripture. You know, there are some moments when revival broke out in the Old Testament when the Scripture was read, and at the very reading of the Word of God, people began to weep. We sit stone-cold silent over the reading of the most blessed book ever written. I wonder what God thinks when all we do is sing about Him. We never sing to Him. I wonder what God thinks when we spend more time on announcements than we do on prayer. I wonder what God thinks when we say that was a good worship service and God says, no, it's not. David writes a psalm. It is a psalm of pure praise. There are no petitions, there are no appeals for God's deliverance in this psalm. It is David writing and calling us to do one thing, to praise God. And 18 times you find the Lord mentioned in this psalm. 25 times if you take the references of the mention of God in verse 3 and the king in verse 10, you'll find 25 references to the Lord. Seven times he uses the phrase, the voice of the Lord. For David, when God spoke, it was like a thundering cloud. When God spoke, it was thundering praise to God that was to be given because God's voice was like a voice of thunder. He begins in heaven in verses 1 and 2. He ends on earth in verses 10 and 11. And in between, David is in the midst of a mighty storm that reminds him of the awesomeness of the God that he worships. First of all, he gives direction to the heavenly congregation. Have you noticed that David calls on the angels to worship God? It seems like he would have called on us to worship God seems like he would have said, the people of God, you, you need to start worshiping. But no, you see, David had sensed the presence of God, and in the presence of God, he knew his inadequacy to express the groanings of his heart. He knew his inadequacy to say to God how much he loved God, and so he calls on the angel to join their voices with his voice to in some way express to God, this is what I feel about you. This is how I think of you. And he begs them, he encourages them, come with me to praise God. First thing he does is he gives honor to the name of God. Ascribe three times, give or ascribe. Acknowledge with your heart and with your mind and your lips. Secondly, he says we are to give God the worship due his name. In verse 2 he says worship the Lord in holy array. The, the word worship means to bow down. What the angels do by nature we have to be told to do. Because our pride and our self-will still wants to stand up and tell God how to run his kingdom and tell God how to run my life. And David says, when we worship God, we are to bow down before God in honor and recognition of the fact that he's in charge and I'm not. He's the one who sits on the throne. He has not vacated it. He will not vacate it. There's a revelation coming, and the revelation comes in this storm, and David is saying, you need to prepare yourself. God's about to move in. 
And when he moves in, everything changes. There are flames of fire. Deer start calving when they're not supposed to. Nature is affected. Life is affected. The environment is affected. When God begins to move in and when God begins to speak, everything around you is affected, so you better get your heart ready so that God can speak to you the way that he wants to speak to you. Then notice the description of the heavenly storm. And that storm is described in one phrase, the voice of the Lord. He compares the voice of the Lord to these successive peals of thunder that are roaring across the countryside. This is nothing new in Exodus 19 and in Exodus 20. God appeared at Mount Sinai with thunder and with lightning, but I want you to look at verse 9 before we're through. In his temple, everything says, what time is it? Are we about through? How much longer is he going to go? That's why we don't experience the presence of God. We're clock-eyed. We're so much in a hurry to get out and eat that God can't feed us that which lasts forever. David says, when you worship God, when you sense the presence of God, that everything cries glory. He refers to the temple and he says, the Ark of the Covenant cries glory. The mercy seat on which the blood is sacrificed is shed cries glory. The, the rod of Aaron cries glory. The manna inside that cries glory. The Torah cries glory. The priests cry glory. The sacrifices cry glory. The holy of holies cries glory. The people gathered in that place, everything about it and everything about them lifts up glory to God. That's what worship's supposed to be. Dwelling in the presence of God in such a way that we're overwhelmed by His glory. Most of what we call worship does not give glory to God because it's half-hearted. It's spasmodic. It's indifferent. It's apathetic. We have to be prompted by the one singing or leading the music to sing louder when heaven reverberates with the sound of praise. Some of us are going to be in for a big shock when we get to glory. Find out glory's loud and it's eternal. We don't go home and have a quiet respite. We worship forever at the throne. We say hallelujah to the Lamb at the throne. And the question I ask myself when I think about worship is, God, what is it that's keeping me from doing with my whole heart now what I'm going to do then? Why don't I get it? Why don't I understand it? And so what he does in verse 1 and 2 is he calls the angels to praise and he comes down in verses 10 and 11 and what he wants is he says, here's what David's saying. He says, I want the praise on earth to match the praise going on in heaven. 
Listen, folks, I don't know how many people are going to be in heaven, but I know this. 75 million people gathered in God's house today, if we learn how to worship, we wouldn't be worried about a lot of the things we're worried about. Who's going to get certified today wouldn't make any difference because we worship a God who sits on the throne. You know what? I don't really care who gets, I'm, I'm past the point of caring who gets certified. I know one thing, my king and my God raises men up and he puts them down. And sometimes God let evil kings rule over Israel because they got what they deserved. You know why they got what they deserved? Because they forgot to worship him. No other gods before you. They put other gods before and God said, fine, you want to worship other gods, you'll serve other gods. And if we don't learn to worship God and experience the presence of God, we're going to miss one of the great blessings that God's given us in this life. The late Senator Robert Kennedy was visiting a tribe in the interior of Brazil. One of the tribes that he visited had recently had an extensive amount of work done by a missionary there, and a number of the people had come to faith in Christ. And as he was going around trying to find what these people did for a living, how they farmed, how they made their livings, how their families worked, how their communities worked, he came up onto one particular gentleman, about a middle-aged gentleman, and he came to him and he said, Sir, what do you enjoy the most? And so through the interpreter, the interpreter asked this tribesman, What do you enjoy the most? And the tribesman said, Being occupied with God. Senator Kennedy thought the man had misunderstood him. And he said, I mean, what do you, is it farming that you enjoy the most? Do you enjoy being a father the most? Do you enjoy being involved in the community the most? What is it that you enjoy the most? And the man stood up and said, Sir, my greatest enjoyment is being occupied with God. And so should it be with us.